Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall, a very famous story. A lot of people know about it. People often refer to it. This is another story today in the life of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, and people will often refer to like a, a tough meeting at work as being you know, thrown into the lion's den, and it's absolutely nothing compared to what Daniel went through. So we're going to explore that today and see what this story is really all about. So in uh, Daniel chapter 6, let's take a look at that together as we get into things. It's actually not that long of a chapter, but it's packed with amazing things that God did. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we'll have that up here on the screen as well if you'd like to read there or look at your own Bible. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, or satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps uh, thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors, advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as, his custom, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed the decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, 
Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Then the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury uh, whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Lord, we thank you this morning for the reading of your word. We thank you for this passage that we are in today because it is your will and your timing that we should be in this passage on this day. Lord, a a day that is called Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we remember uh, the unborn. And Lord, we continue to pray for and to fight for the rights of those who are unborn, knowing that Our world has gone mad, uh, killing millions of children, all in the name of sexual pleasure and convenience. And Lord, we grieve today for all of those who have been mercilessly killed. They have uh, proverbially, Lord, been thrown into the lion's den, but they are with you. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would strengthen your church to stand against such evil things as this. And just as we'll see today as we continue to go through this passage, that when the world comes against your people, against people who believe in God, against people who believe in Jesus, against the church, that just as you said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
against your church, against your people, against your word. And so, Lord, encourage and strengthen and lift us up today and quicken our spirits to understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been following through with our study in Daniel, back in chapter 1, we looked at when Daniel and his friends were taken captive to Babylon, and that was in the year 605 B.C., and uh, his, Daniel and his friends said that they would not acquiesce to the king, and they asked for special treatment to uh, have a special diet, and they wanted to honor God and, and not the king. They didn't want to become a part of the way of the world, so to speak. They didn't want to be integrated into the kingdom as much as their captors wanted them to, teaching them the language, forbidding them to do certain things, uh, mandating that they dress certain ways, and all of that. And we know after three years of training in chapter 2, the Lord raised up Daniel there as the king had a dream, and and Daniel was called to the forefront and was able, in one of his first acts of service to the king, to interpret the dream. And of course, the king promoted him and his three friends uh, to high places in the kingdom. And then we came to chapter 3, to that that point where the friends were being tested. Let's just turn back there for a moment. And that was the fiery furnace, as you recall, when uh, the king decided to set up an image of gold after Daniel had interpreted his dream and said that, you know, this statue was representing his kingdom and he was the head of gold. And then you had the the chest of silver and you had bronze and and all of that. And it represented the different kingdoms that would come after his kingdom. And so the king there in his vanity rose up and decided to build an image to himself and to cause people to bow down and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to bow down and worship before the king. And the people there who were against uh, the children of Israel uh, plotted a, a sinister scheme to come against them and ultimately to have them killed. But you remember as we read that story that that God rescued those young men and as they were thrown into the fire and they were bound with cords, that the men who even threw them into the fire were, were consumed by the fire because the king was so angry that they would defy his order, that he had the, sev- the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it normally was. And yet as they were thrown into the fire, that they were standing and walking around and there was a fourth one like the Son of God walking in the fire with them. And then the king yelled and called out and said, come back out here. Now think about the bizarre nature of this. They're in this thousands of degree furnace, this fire. And they're just walking around, talking with Jesus as it was, because we know that that was a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. And so God rescued them, and then out of that experience, the king then turned around and he made this decree similar to King Darius today, where he said, oh, you know, Daniel's God, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, he's the God we should worship. He's obviously a very powerful God. And then we look at at Nebuchadnezzar's second dream that he had there, and that was the, the time when he was cast away because of his madness, because he wouldn't bow before God, because he wouldn't acknowledge God. Now keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, they were a pagan kingdom. They were not a kingdom that that believed in the one true and the living God. They were polytheists, meaning they believed in many gods. 
And then through that experience in chapter 4, as Daniel came alongside the king, he prophesied to the king as he interpreted the king's dream. And then the king uh, lost his marbles. He went mad for seven years. He lived as a wild beast. And when he came back to his senses and God restored him, he seemed to have come to this place where he, he had a deeper faith in God. And we believe, you know, as we read through that story where he praised God there at the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 34, that this seems to be the praise of someone who believed in God, who genuinely trusted in God. And God, and we looked at how God takes people through these things. He brings these, these trials and these difficulties and these storms upon people's lives to get them to believe, to cause them to see who he truly is. And so God in his grace and his mercy continued to work over and over and over with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he used Daniel and his friends to do it. And then last week we saw in chapter 5, Belshazzar, a descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he kind of had forgotten all these things, even though he, he was aware of it, he knew it. Daniel even says to him as he's talking to him here, because he, he saw this handwriting on the wall in the middle of their feast. And of course, Daniel was called. Uh, that The queen said, there's this one man in whom is the Spirit of God. And remember, Daniel is referred to continually as one in whom is the Holy Spirit or one in whom is the Spirit of the living God. And so Daniel was called to the forefront. He interpreted the handwriting on the wall. And the king, uh, at that point, didn't have the same grace and mercy and forbearance from God that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. And in that moment, as Daniel had interpreted the handwriting, where it says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, you know, and God is going to judge you. And we read that there uh, at the end of chapter 5. This is the inscription, many, many tekel ufarsin. This is the interpretation. God has uh, numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And in that moment, he fell. And the Medes and the Persians took over that very night. And it says there at the end of chapter 5, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And that's where we pick up this story. We're roughly two or three years down the road from chapter 5 at this point. And we know that Daniel is somewhere around 85 years old. There are some who say he may have been as old as 88 to 90 years old at this point in his life. Remember when he was taken captive in chapter 1, he was probably around 15 years old. So think about all these years that Daniel has lived in captivity. We're going to find out in the next section of the book of Daniel, because chapter 6 ends what we would call the historic section, And beginning in chapter 7 through chapter 12, it's all going to be about these dreams and visions and prophecies that God gave Daniel. And so in chapter 7, when we get to that next week, you'll see he goes back to a vision that God gave him during the the reign of King uh, Belshazzar. Uh, And so from chapter 7 forward, it'll be very prophetic and very symbolic, much like the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that when we get there next week. But this week, Daniel has now been moved into the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. What's happened, King Cyrus, um, who was a Persian, has now been put into power. King Darius, who was a Mede, uh, he's serving in the kingdom of King Cyrus. 
And we've, we learn as we look at his name here that his, his name is not Darius, but Darius is a title. Uh, it's much like Pharaoh or Caesar. So he's called King Darius. His real name was Gubaru. So to make this uh, real to us here in New England, think Subaru with a G. That's the way it's spelled, Gubaru. So this King Dubaru, King Darius Gubaru, was an ancient official. Uh, He served under King Cyrus. Um, He was put in charge of Babylon, of that region, and he effectively became the king of Babylon after King Belshazzar was struck down. So that's where we are. Daniel's at near the end of his life. He's endured more than 70 years. We're going to find out in chapter 9. Daniel had a copy of Jeremiah's writing, of Jeremiah's prophecy, And so we're getting to the place in history where King Cyrus and and King Darius are beginning to make decrees and send the children of Israel back to Jerusalem. And so we find out about that historically, if you're into this kind of thing. This is where the book of Ezra comes in as they're beginning to be sent back. So so Ezra records historically uh, three different... um, groups of people being sent back over a period of around 60 or so years that come right after this point in time where we are today in chapter 6. So here in chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So he's dividing the kingdom up. He's organizing it. So he's got uh, 120 satraps, and then he sets three governors or three presidents, so to speak, of whom Daniel was one, and he organizes it in that way, um, that they might give an account to him so that the king would suffer no loss. The kingdom was too large. There was too much at stake. Remember, Babylon was the richest, most powerful kingdom on the earth, and now we are fulfilling the dream in chapter 2 as we're moving from the head down to the chest. And so the the kingdom of Babylon's being given or has been given to uh, the Medes and the Persians. And then verse 3, this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because, underline or note this, an excellent spirit was in him. And we've already seen previously, going back to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that Daniel has always been referred to as a good man, an honest man, a man in whom was the Spirit of God. And so this is now being seen, it's being carried over to King Darius. There are those who believe that the reason Daniel was, was moved so quickly and easily into a position of service and rank within the kingdom under King Darius was because Daniel was probably uh, like an ambassador and he had been doing trade uh, out with the other kingdoms and King Darius probably knew him. But another reason that Daniel probably was moved into this position is remember he wasn't a Babylonian. He was a Jew. He was taken captive and his loyalty would not have been to Babylon anyway deep down in his heart. You may conform outwardly to something, but inwardly in your heart, you have another thing, another purpose, another thought. And so uh, Daniel was promoted in this way. And it says, because an excellent spirit was in him. And now here we see Daniel. Remember in, in, in chapter 1, at roughly 15 years of age, chapter 1, verse 8, we saw that Daniel had purposed not to defile himself. 
And here we are all these years later, like 70, 75 years later. And we see this consistency in Daniel, don't we? And this is something we should note. Over the long haul of his life, he was the same man every day, over and over and over. He was a faithful man. He served God. And we're going to find out in a a few minutes that the reason he's taken down was because he was a faithful man, because he prayed. And so the governors and the satraps sought to found some charge against him because the king wanted to set him over the whole realm, and they were jealous about that, and certainly he wasn't one of them. And so they wanted to take him down. The same thing happened to him in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And in verse 4, it says they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Now think about that. Someone examines your life the way they examine Daniel's life. And these are secular people. These are people who don't like God. They're not partial to God. They don't care about God. They they may be atheists. And they're looking at Daniel's life and they're like, we're going to find some way, some technicality, some point of the law, and we're going to trump up these charges and take him down. And they start looking at his life and they're like, we can't find anything. This guy's clean. He's squeaky clean. In fact, he's so clean and he looks so good that our king wants to put him in charge over the whole kingdom. And we can't have that. So don't underestimate the power of your witness. Don't underestimate the power of being faithful and true before God. You know, our culture looks at a person who is a Christian, and they, they apply all sorts of terms to us. Back, back earlier in my day, it used to be you know, a goody two-shoes, an old fuddy-duddy, and things like that. Today, we're called bigoted and hateful. Why? Because we love God and because we won't bend the knee to the gods of this day. We won't bend the knee to abortion. We won't bend the knee to same-sex marriage. We won't bend the knee to... Uh, LGBTQ rights in our public libraries and taking our kids to transvestite story hour and all of these kinds of things, which I watch this, these things on the news and, I, and it blows my mind to see women, mothers, taking their little kids, you know, like, like Judah, to a library to watch this freakishly dressed man, dressed as a woman, and they're trying to normalize this and say, this is just a normal part of life. And why are you promoting bizarre sexual practices to little kids? But this is where our culture is. And these same things, the principle, Jesus called you know, Satan the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. And, and Satan is taking the liberties, all the liberties that he can right now to, to do these things. And the ultimate end game is one day, the closer we get to the time when Jesus comes to rapture his church out of the way and the great tribulation comes, is that Satan is moving up to that day in the midpoint of the tribulation when uh, the Antichrist goes in and commits the abomination of desolation and he fulfills on that day as he goes in there and he declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped, he fulfills in time and history 
an ancient in eternity past declaration that he made in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 where he rose up against God. And he said, I will be like the Most High. And that day comes for him on that day during the time of the tribulation. And see, right now the spirit of Antichrist exists in the age that we now live. And so he's doing these kinds of things. Where he's like, we we have to get rid of people who are righteous. So these men, verse 5, said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So now what do they do? They begin to look at how he worships. They, they look at the word of God. And just like they're doing today, don't, make no mistake, don't think that the world looking at the church or believers and calling us bigots and haters by taking God's word and twisting it and saying that we hate people who are sinners, which is the complete opposite. We're all sinners. Every person who's saved is a sinner. We, our, our sin, according to the Bible, there's a list of, of the types of sin. But a person who is in a homosexual relationship versus a person who is a, a drunkard and an, and an adulterer, it's all sin before God. And let's not miss the fact that sin, the word sin, means to miss the mark. And anyone who misses the mark of perfection and holiness before God is a sinner. So any sinner is guilty before God. And God says the only way that your sin can be atoned for is through my son, Jesus Christ. So because of that, they look at the word of God. They look at the people of God and they're like, we can't, maybe we can't find a fault, you know, through the normal laws. We'll create some bizarre laws or better yet, we look at their law. We look at their God and how they worship. And as they said here, we shall not find any charge against him unless we find it against the concerning the law of his God. So now you see the elaborate ruse. The scheme is Get Daniel out of the way so that we can have more power. And remember, the king set these men in place, these three men and these other uh, satraps and and whatnot, to govern the kingdom. And, And it said so that the king basically wouldn't be robbed. So obviously their goal is to rob and to skim and to take the money for themselves. And so they got to get Daniel out of the way because he's a righteous man. So the only weakness that they could find was his faithfulness to God. Oh, that that might be said of us. That when people come for us, because they will. That the only fault they can find is our faith toward God. One person said every Christian should consider if others could say the same about them. And then he goes on to say, the world, this is Alexander McLaren, an old Scottish preacher, Uh, The world may not know the details of doctrine of the intimacies or the intimacies of worship with God, but they can tell a bad temper, selfishness, conceitedness, or dishonesty when they see it. The world is a very poor critic of my Christianity, but it is a very sufficient critic of my conduct. In other words, as believers, we shouldn't be giving the unbelieving world reason to disbelieve. We shouldn't be giving them ammunition to point the finger at God because of how we conduct ourselves. Thus, we need to be filled with God's spirit just as Daniel was. So these governors, verse 6, satraps, uh, they thronged before the king and they went in, they flattered the king. Oh, King Darius lived forever. 
And then they all came and they said, we've all gotten together, which is not true because Daniel was not included in that. And we've gotten together, we've, we've decided you should establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any God or man for 30 days except you, for 30 days you're going to be God. Not just king, you're going to be God. And we want people to worship you. And anyone who doesn't abide by this law should be cast into the den of lions. That was their ultimate way of judging people who broke their law. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing. Here it is right now. Go ahead, sign it right here. Come on. We're all here together. You need to do this. You made us your advisors. They're pressuring the king so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. And you say, why was this law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, different than, than the other kings? And it's because, uh, and I quote, the decrees of a Persian king were unchangeable because he was thought to speak for the gods who could never be wrong and thus never needed to change their minds. So they believed that their law was literally the law of the gods when they wrote it. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, Daniel was aware he knew this thing was happening. He went home. So look at Daniel's response to the thing that happened that he knew was specifically done against him. And he went into his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. And he knelt down on his knees three times that day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, listen, as was his custom since early days. Daniel didn't become religious or holy because the screws were turned and the pressure was applied. This had been his custom since he was a young man. And this this would be what we might call a long obedience in the right direction. This was the pattern of his life. What did Daniel do every day, if I could put it in a little more of a modern vernacular for us? He got up every day, he read his Bible, he prayed, he turned his eyes toward, toward God. In this case, opened his windows and prayed toward Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in a moment. And this is what he did every single day. So that when these things come, when these storms entered his life, when these trials came, when these unreasonable decrees came from a king, when people rose up and tried to find a roundabout way, just as they did with Esther. Remember the story of Queen Esther and Mordecai? And they said to Queen Esther, you know, this is the time that you've been raised up for such a time as this to take a stand for your people because a crazy law had been written by Haman. He did the same thing in in the book of Esther to find a way to kill all the Jews off who were still remaining in the kingdom, who hadn't gone back to Jerusalem. So here Daniel, as was his custom, he went up into his upper room and prayed. And note this about Daniel. It's not just that Daniel went in his room and prayed. Did you see what it said here? He knelt down on his knees. Now, I want to call something to our minds this morning. As we think about prayer, I I hope we all pray in some form or fashion to God. But I wonder how many of us ever get down on our knees and pray. 
As I was reading this, I was thinking about it. I do sometimes, it's admittedly not often, but I do know this, that when we kneel down, when I kneel down, I mean, think about it. How often in your life do you kneel down? And don't we just sort of instinctively know when you kneel down, you're, you're submitting. You, you are bending your knee in homage, in this case, to God, the one true and the living God. And Daniel's habit, his posture, was to kneel down as he sought God. And I'd like to encourage you, not to make you feel guilty, but to encourage you that this is a good thing to do. It's not, it doesn't mean that God's going to hear your prayer better because you're on your knees or make your prayers necessarily more effective because you're on your knees as opposed to sitting in a chair. However, have you considered it? Have you ever done this? It's okay to put a pillow down and kneel on it. I mean, you don't have to kneel down on, on gravel. But kneel before God. This one ancient said, kneeling is a begging posture and we must all come to God as beggars. So he prayed, he gave thanks before his God. It doesn't say what all the content of his prayer was. I'm sure somewhere in there was a, God, what are we doing here? God, help me. God, be merciful to me. But notice that certainly the content of his prayer to some degree was giving of thanks and, and praise. You know, and so often I think we, we devolve prayer to the point of simply, you know, petition or supplication. Uh, God, I got these needs. Here's my list for today. You can see right there, I signed it on the bottom and dated it. A couple of those things are time sensitive, God, like by tomorrow at five, some decisions have to be made. All right, you got it? Awesome. See you later. Thanks. I'd like to suggest to you that Daniel's prayer, and when we see people in the Word of God praying as examples to us that, yes, they do pray and they come and they, they make their request before God, but just like with, you know, for example, Peter and John in the book of Acts in chapters 3, 4, and 5, where, you know, they were going up to the temple to pray, and as they were walking in, there was the beggar, and he was crying out for alms, and they said, you know, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we give you, and to stand up and walk. And then that, that healing, that just, you know, act of love can't turn into a riot, and they got thrown in prison, and they got beaten. And what happened on the other end of that? They go back to the prayer meeting, and what do they say as they're praying? They're, they, don't, they don't pray that, oh, God, please make this silly persecution stop. Their prayer was, Lord, give us boldness to go back and do it again. It's very different, right? We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid suffering at all costs. Now, we're not sadomasochistic in that we want that kind of thing to happen, but we have to understand that our faith costs something. It costs the Son of God his life. And the world hates God. And Jesus said, don't worry if they hate you, it's because they hate me. And it's normal that they would hate you because they hate God. And so Daniel is about to experience this, and I believe that as he's there praying, as was his custom since early days, that Daniel knew that his peace came from being in the presence of God. And as we just sang, just any moment, anytime you have fear, go before God. God, take this fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. Lord, I want to be, have faith and be faithful. I don't want to be fearful. 
If I'm fearful, I can't be faithful. And so Daniel knelt and he prayed before God. And you know that beautiful verse in Philippians chapter 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Daniel did that. Daniel would not give obedience to a king or to a government that belonged first to God. Some person said, and I don't have the attribution of this, that resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Now these people were using Daniel's faith to get him arrested and killed so that they could have money. Basically, that's what it came down to. Remember again when Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and they were commanding them, stop speaking the name of Jesus, and they said, you can do what you want, but we have to do what God told us to do. He told us to do this. We have to speak. We must bear witness. So you do to us what you must. The best thing Daniel and any of us could do was to radically obey God. It isn't hard to see why people are men-pleasers. It seems as if people have the power to hire or to fire us, to break our hearts, to slander us, to make our lives generally miserable. The power to obey God and stand for Him comes from a settled understanding that it is God who is really in control, not them. Now Daniel said that he, uh, we're told that he was praying toward heaven in 1 Kings chapter 8. There's, it's a beautiful chapter, I would encourage you to read it, but when King Solomon on that day was inaugurating the worship of the temple that he had just built, listen to what he said. And he gave this in so many contexts. He says, uh, regarding the prayer of your servant, that your eyes may be open toward this temple, God, night and day, toward the place which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And so he sort of sets up this idea that you don't have to be in the temple, but you turn toward the temple, whether you're 10 feet away from it or 10,000 miles away from it. And you look toward the temple because that's where God's presence was and you pray toward the temple. In other words, you're turning your face and your heart toward the presence of God. And then he goes on to say um, in verse 35, when they pray, speaking of of people, when there's no rain or or when they've sinned against you, when, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. And he goes on to apply this in different situations. A little further down, he says, uh, whatever prayer, whenever supplication is made by anyone, um, and they know the plague of their own hearts, and they spread out their hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven from your dwelling place and forgive and act. And he goes on and on, and he does this several times. He even says to foreigners toward the end of the chapter, uh, when he comes and he prays toward this temple, Here in heaven, your dwelling place, uh, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. The whole idea of turning and praying toward Jerusalem is that that's where God said he would dwell with his presence on the earth. Now, of course, he's omnipresent. 
But it's just this idea of we have something to grab hold to. It's a handle of sense. It's like the horns of the altar. We grab a hold of God and we turn toward Jerusalem and we remind ourselves of the presence of God and how we desire the presence of God. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication. So they were watching Daniel, weren't they? Daniel opened his windows every day to pray. And they knew. They knew this. And, of course, this is in the day before iPhones and cameras and you know, spyware and all that. And all they did was they just stood out there. Yep, he opened his windows. Yep, it's about right. Yep, there he is. He just knelt down. Yep, oh, he assumed the posture of prayer. He's obviously not praying to God the King. He's breaking the law. Quick, let's go get him arrested. The most important part of a believer's life is that part that only God sees. Our daily private time of meditation and prayer. You pray as your face is set, the British theologian P.T. Forsyth said, towards Jerusalem or toward Babylon. Most of the world begins the day looking toward the world and hoping to get something from the world. But the Christian believer looks to the Lord and to his promises and enters each new day by faith. You see, outlook determines outcome. And when we look to the Lord for his guidance and his help each and every day, we know that the outcome is in his hands and that we have nothing to fear. D.L. Moody says, real true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. And we might add man's weakness transformed into God's strength. So they went before the king. They spoke. They told him what happened. They said, king, didn't you just sign a law? Yep. Daniel broke your law. They went right in. They went right for the jugular. And they knew the king had this affinity for Daniel, that he liked Daniel. And they bring him up on charges, verse 13. That Daniel who's one of the captives of the children of Israel. You see, he's not loyal to you. He's loyal to his God. He's not loyal to you. He's disrespecting you. He's acting in such a way that he's treating you uh, as as a a bad example. You appointed him as a a president, as a governor, right? You can't have your governor setting this kind of an example. And so they bring him in before the king, and the king... When he heard these words, verse 14, was greatly displeased with himself. He knew he had been taken. He knew he had been rushed into signing something that he didn't read or that he didn't fully understand or wasn't fully thought through. And so he set his heart on finding a way to deliver Daniel, to get him out of this mess. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Why? Because on the day... Uh, in their system of law, on the day that someone was found guilty, by sundown that day, the sentence, whatever it was, must be executed by sundown. In this case, to be thrown into the lion's den as they wrote into the law. So these men approached the king, presumably at the end of the day, and said, you know that it's the law. You can't change it. It's got to be done. Go do it. Now think about how devious and manipulative these people were because they were making the king kill someone who was very near and dear to his heart because of a silly law that they had backed him into. 
So the king gave the command, verse 16. He'd exhausted all of his resources. They brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now we are told from ancient history that what they did is they dug a, a big pit and, and lions are pretty strong. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Don't, don't think about the zoo. Think about a lion who is hungry and ravenous and they, they put them in this big pit. Now they must have had some way of getting down there to take care of them and to feed them and whatever. But we, we presume this fit, pit is at least like 25 feet deep because they could, you know, jump and climb and, and do all these crazy things. In fact, just to illustrate this, if you've ever seen or been on a, like a, a safari, uh, California has some, there's one in North Carolina. Uh, as you go out and ride, they've got these fences and it might be an open range. And there was this, uh, this happened just a few years ago in one of the safaris in California, there was a lioness, you know, a female lion, who uh, the lions were all in an area that had uh, an eight or ten foot high fence, something like that. And they kept finding zebra carcasses in the area where they were, but the zebras were over there on the other side of the fence. And one day they observed this lioness jump up, go over the fence, go kill a zebra. Now think about how big a zebra is. This is like a horse, right? And in her mouth, with the zebra in her mouth, jumped back over the fence so that the lions could eat. So it just kind of gives you the idea of how powerful they are. So now we have this den of lions, this pit of lions. And as was their uh, practice, they would throw people in, part, you know, as a form of, of capital execution. But I'm sure in part, just as they did in the time of the Roman game, games, as they fed the Christians to the lions, that once an animal, so we're told, tastes human blood, that they, that's what they want. And so the, these lions are ravenous. And so the king gave the command. They brought Daniel. They cast him into the, the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel in verse 16, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Wow, a pagan king expressing faith in God because of Daniel's witness. Isn't that powerful? And this is what God wants to do through the lives of his people who remain faithful, who pray, who seek the Lord, who have that, that private, quiet time as they look to God. One person said, pray for a faith that will not shrink when washed in the waters of affliction. A believer who knows how to kneel in prayer has no problem standing in the strength of the Lord. So Daniel was cast in, a stone was brought, it was laid on the mouth, the king sealed it with his signet ring, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, his sleep went from him. And so all night he tossed and turned, and he labored and, and cried, and whatever he did, and he wanted to deliver Daniel, but he couldn't. And he felt so bad because he had been tricked and, and duped into it. When our lives are centered in God, we can ever afford to leave circumstances to the compulsion of the one in whom we trust. The occasional is always affected by the habitual. The occasional is always affected by the habitual, meaning 
If we have a life of consistency, if we seek God, if we pray, if we read His Word, then when these things happen, we don't come unglued, we don't fall apart. Why? Because we know that God has it all under control. Someone has suggested that perhaps Daniel, being a man of the Word, maybe he prayed Psalm 22, which reads as follows, O God, excuse me, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my, per- my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me, and I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Verse 19, then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. Now as you read this, I just get the sense of the picture of the ladies going to the tomb three days after Jesus had died. You get that that sort of feeling here that that's what's happening, except this is the king, and it's only been one, one night. And so when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, Look at his faith. Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. I imagine hearing that voice coming up out of that pit made his heart jump for joy. And notice what the king said. Has your God whom you serve continually, look at the witness, right? The king knows this. He knows this about Daniel. Has he been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, listen, Jude, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, uh, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Is God able? Absolutely. Now, did, does, does God, did God always deliver people? No, sometimes he allowed them to, to go into the presence of, of heaven. We think of Stephen, who stood, and he witnessed before the Lord, and he witnessed to the Sanhedrin. But he stood there, and he was stoned. And as he was being stoned, even as he was losing consciousness, remember there in Acts chapter 7, he cried out, and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it says that he was able to see Jesus standing in heaven waiting to receive him. Still had a witness even in death. In this case, God chose to deliver Daniel to rescue him. And Daniel says in verse 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. What an amazing thing. Don't you get the sense as you read this that while the king is in his palace lamenting and tossing and turning and he's just all upset, he didn't sleep all night. Daniel probably slept like a baby. He had this big fluffy pillow that he slept on, this lion, most likely. And he was at complete peace in the lion's den and the the king's in his palace tossing and turning and all, all sorts of turmoil. Hebrews 11 who through, the, who, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's a reference, Hebrews 11.33, to this story in Daniel chapter 6. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him, of course, and he commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. His faith was rewarded. You see, your faith matters. It's not a name it and claim it faith. It's not a faith that can treat God like a genie to to do our bidding. You see, we serve him. He does not serve us. But if we will kneel before him, if we will bow before him, if we will seek his face, Isaiah says, he will keep him in perfect peace who keeps his mind stayed on me. And that's what Daniel did for 70 plus years. Every time, every morning, three times a day, he set his mind upon the Lord. And even if, remember back when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were being forced to bow before the statue and all that, and they said, you know, our God's able, but even if he doesn't rescue us, O king, we will not bow to your false God. I mean, if our, if our God wills it, uh, that we die, then fine. And what, it, what happened in that situation? He sent Jesus to rescue them. And here, God sends an angel And the king sees it. And so the king brought a command, gave a command, and brought those men who had accused Daniel. And they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Now, before you go off tilt here and say, oh, why did, you know, God allow the women and the children to be killed? This was was the law of the Medes and the Persians. They're carrying out their law, which was, The man who was found guilty, everybody in his household was killed. So the guilt of the man fell on the household. And so that's why they did this. So it's a crazy thing. It's a scary thing. But it also points out a principle of how our sin can affect other people. Not that this is going to happen to you or to me because we sin, but the point is that our sin has a tentacles. It has a far-reaching effect on people. Then King Darius wrote, because the law and the Medes and the Persians can't change, and because the the schemers were short-sighted, and they said, oh, for 30 days, right? Now the king, listen to what he does. King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. That is the complete opposite of what they wanted, right? (laughs) For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers, he rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? God did a miracle on Daniel's behalf that the whole kingdom is being Uh, given visibility into. The king is proclaiming this miracle over the whole kingdom. And because of this miracle, and because it would seem, as we read this here about King Darius, uh, God has not only given Daniel favor into King Darius, but he's also, it seems, drawing Darius near to him. I can't say with certainty that Darius believed in the Lord, but it certainly seems by what he said here that he believed in God. He rescued, uh, delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Verse 28, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. A few thoughts as we close. The Puritan preacher Henry Smith said, God examines with trials, the devil with temptations, and the world with persecutions. Another Puritan, Richard Baxter, said that God's people 
should be more concerned that they deserve the persecution than that they be delivered from it because deserving it would be evidence of their faithfulness to the Lord. Someone has said a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. You see, prayer prepares us for the storm or for the trials. Prayer is our source of power and peace in the storm. God often uses storms for purification, for edification, for sanctification. But he also uses storms and trials to get our attention. God often uses storms and trials to get us to a place where we can hear him. You cannot avoid storms. They're going to come. You can't control that. So all of you control freaks, just accept that. You can't get yourself out of the storm. You can't avoid it. Do not make, this is very important, do not make important or drastic decisions in the midst of the storm or in the midst of the trial. Wait until it passes. One thing we can learn about situations like this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, others who have gone through these kinds of things, and they've gone through it courageously, courage is contagious. When a courageous person takes a stand, the spine of another is stiffened. Think about that. A courageous example of one person can cause others to be courageous. And then finally, in order to take a stand, you must first bow before God. What are you taking a stand on? Who are you taking a stand for if you haven't first bowed before God, before Jesus Christ? Daniel in the lion's den. Keep that in mind next time somebody throws that out there and says, oh, that was a terrible meeting. It was like Daniel in the lion's den. No, it wasn't. Your faith wasn't called into question. You weren't put on trial for your faith. You weren't thrown into the pit because of your faith. It was just a tough situation. It was a difficulty. It was a a little baby wave in the baby pool. It was nothing compared to what God does when we encounter these kinds of things. And I hope that this story of Daniel and the lion's den helps us understand that when, when we go through things, that like Daniel, we need to look to God. But not just in the moment, not just because I, well, I haven't prayed for, you know, three months. You know, God will take that. And, and he does use the storms and the trials to draw us near to himself. But I pray that we will just get in the habit now of praying and reading and seeking his face and being in fellowship so that we might be encouraged and we might be strengthened so that when these things happen, that we don't fall apart. You've probably heard the expression that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who is not. So it's okay for your Bible to get a little messy, for pages to fall out, for the binding to fall off. That's a good thing. It really is a good thing. You can get it rebound. You can get another Bible. But you can't get another soul. You can't get another heart. And your witness, it's the things that you allow into your life through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God that make us strong, that give us that witness. And I don't know about you, but as I think about the apostles, as I think about Daniel, I want to have that kind of witness. 
not that I might be glorified, but that he might be glorified, because that's what Daniel did. Daniel pointed toward God. And notice, when Nebuchadnezzar did this, when Darius did this, when they saw what happened, when they looked into the lives of these people, they didn't you know, necessarily look at them and say, oh man, we should make them gods. What did they do? They glorified the God that they worshiped. And that's what Darius did here at the end. He, he said to all peoples, nations, and languages, and then he goes on to say uh, that you must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Not before Daniel, but before the God of Daniel. And that's what we want. We want people to see God. We want people to see Christ. And so we want to point people toward the Lord and oh, that our witness might point toward Christ. Amen. Lord, we love you today. Thank you for this time. And Lord, we just bless you so much. We thank you for what you've spoken to us, for how you've ministered to us. Lord, strengthen and encourage us and let us be your servants. Let us be good witnesses, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that for whatever we've heard today, the things that we've taken from it personally, maybe it's as simple as, I just need to start getting up at 6 a.m. and reading my Bible, then I pray that that would would be what we do. And that you would begin to press these things upon our hearts, or maybe it's that I, I need to start getting on my knees when I pray. Whatever it is that we've taken from this time, Lord, enable them in our lives that we might serve you, that we might be more in love with you, that we might be more filled with you. Lord, for any among us today who maybe don't know you or they've never considered who you truly are, I pray that this has been a time where they've been drawn near. And I pray that they might bend their knee, whether it be literally or in their heart, to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I I want to draw near to you. I want your peace. I want your forgiveness in my life. I want you to make me a person like Daniel or like Peter, or like Paul, or more importantly, like Jesus. Lord, do that for them right now as they pray and as they reach out to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of the time this morning, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to have the men go ahead and pass out communion. Uh, I'm just going to ask JR if you could just put some music on for a moment. I'll lead us to the communion table, and then we'll close with a song.